Turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 35. We're going to begin with verse 1. I'm going to read a couple of verses from Psalms when we get there. Um, Here's what this message is about. In the earlier in the year, um, I pray always at the, oh, around December, early January, about the coming year. There are a group of churches that invite me every, really, January and February. There's a group of churches that ask me to come and speak prophetically into the coming year. So I really get on my face before God and say, God, what do you want me to say to your people? Out of that prayer came this, this message and the one for tonight. Now, the one this morning came easy, fairly easy. My question to God was this. Having traveled all over this nation and preached in churches great and small, having been part of a long-running revival movement that you guys were aware of and part of for a while, um, why do we see a move of the Holy Spirit and why do we lose a move of the Holy Spirit? You ever wondered things like that? And God, what is it going to take to shake our region and shake our area and bring a lasting move of God? How is it, Lord, that we fall into this somehow where we have a miraculous divine visitation from God and then we seem to fall out of it? What are the things that keep us from having that in our home, having the touch of God in our lives personally? Have you ever wondered about stuff like that? Okay, two people. Glory to God. I'm here for you. (laughs) Did they say amen? Y'all do say amen? I'm from Catahoula Parish in Louisiana. Okay. Where's that Suggs boy? I know you know where that is, right? Grew up with your mom. I know we went to the same church. So all my people are from Catahoula Parish, Concordia Parish, where they raise cur dogs, Catahoula curs. And so those are coon hunting dogs. And so when you say amen to a central Louisiana redneck, I know I'm down here south of I-10, but it's kind of like saying sick them to a coon dog. So it's okay to say amen. It's okay. So this is what came out of this. Tonight, the message that I'm sharing tonight also came out of that, but it took God five months to talk me into preaching it. But I'm preaching it tonight. Hallelujah. So if you're at Jeremiah chapter 35, beginning with verse 1, by the way, it's, it's an honor and a blessing to be back among you. God bless you. For those of you that I haven't met yet, I am an equal opportunity offender. I make eye contact, and I love you with the love of the Lord. Hallelujah. So here's two verses out of the Psalms. Psalm 61, verse 5. By the way, the title of the message is Vows of Power. Vows of power. Psalm 61, verse 5, David says, For you have heard my vows, O God. You have given me the inheritance of those who fear your name. And then he said this in Psalm 56, verse 12. Your vows are binding upon me, O God. I will render my praise unto you. When I read that, that word render, Brother Ricky, in the Hebrew is here is kartageo. It means this, to refine or intensify or to boil down till you have just the essence. What was David saying? I feel the weight of the promises that I've made you. I intensely feel the vows that I made you, God. I feel the weight of it, not in a negative sense, not in a bad sense, but in a good sense. I feel the full weight of heaven. 
in what I've promised you and what you've promised me. Let's pray. Father, I pray right now, Lord, for healing and restoration. God, I declare that this is a message of hope for your people this morning, a message of strength, Father, that they leave this place, Lord, with all the wind of heaven blowing at their back and buoying them along and taking them forward in you. And we declare it right now. We agree together in Jesus' name. And the church said what? Amen. Amen. Good practice. Yay. The word vow means this. I'm going to give you the Hebrew and I'm going to give you Webster's. Webster's dictionary means a solemn promise, an oath, or a pledge made to something or someone, especially a deity. Uh, Companion words are words like commitment and covenant. How many of you believe in covenant with God? How many of you have made a covenant with God? Hallelujah. Four people. Glory to God. We're we're moving forward. We went from two to four. Um, The Hebrew words are nadir or nadar. It means a promise to serve, a promised offering or gift to consecrate unto or to dedicate unto. So interchangeably, we're going to use these words this morning. Covenant, promise, and vow. Covenant, promise, and vow. Okay. Let's look at Jeremiah 35, and I want to give you a really, really strange story. Jeremiah, it's been during that time of the Babylonian captivity. Israel is down to a remnant. As a matter of fact, if you read later in here, the remnant actually comes... Just a few people left that hadn't been put into captivity. They're going to eventually be put into captivity. The remnant come to Jeremiah and said, we need a word from the Lord. He said, here's the word of the Lord. You sinned, you're going into captivity. We don't like your word, they said to him. And they actually said to him, you'd think they would have learned this. We're going to go to Egypt. What? Anybody remember how bad that was last time? That's a bad decision. He said, if you go to Egypt, remnant, now you got understand, these are God's chosen people. They're the remnant. They're the good folks. They said, we don't, we're not going to receive your word. We're going to Egypt. He said, if you do that, your whole family is going to die, and so will all the Egyptians. They did. Then out of the remnant was left only a remnant. Y'all with me so far? And in the midst of all this turmoil, and what he said to them was this, if you understand where you're at right now and you go through this and obey God, I'll bring you through the captivity. You'll come back and your lands will be restored to you and your homes will be restored to you and God will give back everything that you lost if you just trust me. If there's anything I could say to you right now is that America right now is in Babylonian captivity. We have been for a stretch of years. It doesn't matter what political party that you like or you don't like. We're talking about Babylon has taken over our social media. Babylon has taken over our educational system. Babylon has taken over our political system. That's where we're living right now. And if we understand that, then we can have the favor that God gave Daniel and the Hebrew boys. Hallelujah. And God will protect us in fiery furnaces and God will feed us and we'll prosper even in Babylon. Is that cool or what? So God is saying, understand the agent you're living in and cry out for God. And trust me, I will restore you to your land. I will restore what the devourer has robbed from you. Please get a hold of this right now. I will restore you if you'll trust me. I'll bring you through this season of life that's been difficult for you. Hallelujah. Amen. Trust God. (laughs) Hallelujah. How did he get so upbeat? Hallelujah. Jeremiah chapter 35, beginning with verse 1, is a very, very strange tale that happens during this season. It starts like this. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, saying, Go to the house of the Rechabites and speak to them and bring them into the house of the Lord into one of the chambers and give them wine to drink. Now, this is a strange 
request from God or commandment from God. Then I took Jasoniah, the son of Jeremiah, the son of Habazaniah, and his brothers and all his sons and the whole house of the Rechabites. I brought them into the house of the Lord, into the chambers of the sons of Hanan, the son of Igdaliah, the man of God, which was near the chamber of the officials, which was above the chamber of Messiah, son of Shalom, the doorkeeper. And I'm going to break that all down for you in a second. Then I set before the men of the house of the Rechabites pitchers full of wine and cups, and I said to them, drink wine. Now let me tell you why this is an insane thing that Jeremiah just did. If you don't know who the Rechabites were, they were Moses' wife's people. Zipporah, the one that married Moses, they were Kenites. And they were not from the tribes of Israel. They decided to serve Jehovah God because Moses' wife married Moses. But when they came in, they weren't born into this. I said they did not come into this because they were born into this. They served God by choice. And they were so set apart that whenever Rahab and Jonadab, uh, his son or grandson, decide to do this, they made their people do a vow. I said, look, we're coming out of a pagan culture, so here's what we want you to do. We want you to separate yourself from the pagan culture if you're going to do what we're doing, and here's what we're going to ask of you. We ask that you don't drink wine. We ask that you live as nomads, live in tents, separate yourself from the culture. Uh, you're not going to own a vineyard. In other words, we're not going to own anything because we don't want anything to own us. Sounds extreme, but just hang on. We're going to keep ourselves separate unto God. We're not going to be swayed by other people's opinions or by the popular culture around us. We're doing this so our people can be blessed by God. Are y'all with me so far? So they made a vow to not drink wine or anything that had to do with wine. And here is the holiest guy in the whole nation asking you to break your vow. Not only that, he takes you into the holiest house in all of Israel, into the temple. He takes you in one of the holiest chambers, the place where the priests would get ready before they would go in to worship God. Tracking with me so far? So the holiest cat in all the nation takes you to the holiest house in all the nation, in one of the holiest rooms in the house, and tempts you to break your vow to God. Sounds insane, right? And here's how they replied to Jeremiah, the prophet of God. They said, But we said, we will not drink wine for Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us saying, you shall not drink wine. You are your sons forever. Stop right there. If you don't know who Jonadab was, when Jehu and Elisha heard from Elijah, go take care of Jezebel and Ahab. Take care of that Jezebel spirit. Guess who he went to? He didn't go to any of the tribal leaders of Israel. He went to Jonadab, a guy who wasn't even an Israelite, because he had the greatest integrity of anybody in the land. He said, I want you to come watch me when I clean up this mess that we call Jezebel. So Jonadab had that kind of character. So that's why they're mentioning his name here. We're not going to build a house, says verse 7. Not going to sow seed, not plant a vineyard or own one, but in tents you shall dwell all your days, and you shall live many days in the land where you sojourn. We have obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, in all that he commanded us not to drink wine all our days. We, our wives, our sons, or our daughters, not to build a house to dwell in. We don't have a vineyard um, or a field or a seed. We have only dwelt in tents, and we have obeyed and done according to all that Jonadab, our father, commanded us. Now look this way. Here's what they're saying. We're separating ourselves unto God. We're separating in holiness. And even if you're the guy who is supposed to be the most respected prophet in all of Israel, we're not going to do what you say. We're going to obey our God. And we're not going to break our promise to God. 
So just let me just say something to you. God doesn't have a problem with you having stuff. The American dream is the three-car garage, excuse me, two-car garage, three-bedroom house, 2.5 children, which I'm never sure how they actually divided that up. Just my luck, I would get the half a kid. I don't know. Not sure which half. Probably the half like uh, Hayden and Hunter that eats you out of house and home. I don't know. Probably. God doesn't have a problem with you having something nice made out of fiberglass to drive around on the lake. God just doesn't want you to worship that stuff and put it before him. He doesn't want the culture to rule you. We are in the world, but we're not of the world. With me so far. So here's what God says to them after they answered back and said, Jeremiah, we don't know why you're tempting us, why you're testing us. Jeremiah says, okay, I didn't really want you to do this. As a matter of fact, Israel, I want you to listen. These people know how to keep their promises. That was only a test. Israel, you do not know how to keep your promises. Church folk, you don't know how to keep your promises. These other people that seem to be kind of outside the pale, they're actually keeping their vows to God. So Israel, now God has something. Y'all just kind of be on pause for a second. Let me uh, let my God say something to the Rechabites. And he says it later on in this chapter, verse 18 and verse 19. Look at this. Then Jeremiah said to the house of the Rechabites, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, because you have obeyed the command of Jonadab, your father, and kept all his commands and done according to all that he commanded you. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, shall not lack a man to stand before me always. So here's what God is saying. Because you were true to me, unprecedented favor and access to God. Not only are you blessed, but your house is blessed. Your family's blessed, and you're going to be able to come into my presence boldly and ask anything of me because you kept your vow to me. So here's a law when it comes to the vows of God. In God's economy, don't promise it if you don't mean it. Don't say it if you don't mean it. Recently, I had uh, dinner. I've had a couple of times with Dr. Chuck Stecker, who is a decorated war veteran and a a special forces colonel over our uh, special forces units for many, many years. What people don't know about him, he speaks at men's conferences all over the place. What people don't know about him, uh, this amazing man of God, is he was part of the original founding group of Promise Keepers. How many men here have heard of Promise Keepers? It's been a while since it was a movement, but it was a movement for about five years. It was filling up stadiums. It was filling up arenas. It grew from filling up churches to filling up stadiums. And it went on for about another five years. Eventually it went by the wayside. But while that men's movement was happening, men were being restored back to their families. Men were being delivered from pornography. Men were being delivered from alcoholism. Marriages were being put back together. But now we're living in an age of promise breakers. Where spiritual leaders around our nation break their promises. Where politicians break their promises. Where civic leaders break their promises. Where moms and dads break their promises. Now it's kind of got quiet in here. We've fallen into that kind of culture where what we say doesn't mean a whole lot. When we used to come from a culture where a man's word was his bond. You didn't even have to sign on a piece of paper. You could shake somebody's hand. 
I told you I'm an equal opportunity offender. I'm kind of looking at everybody right here. But if you made a promise to somebody, you kept your word. If you did not keep your word, you couldn't do business in a town. People didn't trust you. People wouldn't align themselves with you. Can I say to you, God is going to be restoring honor back to the church. God's going to be restoring honor back to your house. I believe the Lord is doing a work in this and he's changing our hearts. How many of you want to be a new creature in Christ Jesus? Amen, I do too. Jacob made a vow to God in Genesis chapter 28. I'm just going to reference it. He built an altar to the Lord. He saw the Lord. Hallelujah. He built a house of God, a place to worship the Lord, and his vow to God. He even promised to pay tithes, Pastor. Now, that's a vow, and the Bible uses the word vow. He even vowed to pay tithes. It triggered a new direction. The guy who was known as a liar and a supplanter and a deceiver who deceived his own mom, uh, his own dad, who deceived his own brother, who, who tried to take what was not his, that man's name was changed from Jacob or deceiver to Israel, a prince with God. He received a new destiny. He received a new identity. And all of that is stuff y'all have heard preached but I'm fixed to take this somewhere where we don't go because where God has me going with this is a place of healing and restoration for the church. And God has sent me to remove a stumbling block and an obstacle in our lives that has kept us from having the kind of favor and access we just read about. How many of you want that kind of favor and access with God for your families? How many of you want to see God break the curse over your family? Okay, we're getting somewhere. David said this in Psalm 50, verse 14. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Pay your vows to the Most High. See, not every scripture contains the word vow. Sometimes the scripture just says, I will or I shall. You find Jesus saying that a lot. Go to Psalm 101 with me. I'm going to move very quickly here. Psalm 101. And I'm about to read something to you. It's going to be kind of eye-opening, I believe. David also said this in Psalm 146. And I'm giving you lots of scripture so I can prove what I'm saying this morning. See, tonight's going to be very intense, very good as well. But this morning, we're going to renew our vows. I said this morning, we're going to renew our vows. How many of you want to have the curse broken off of your family? How many people would be honest enough to say, and you're going to see my hand up, I've broken promises that I made to God. Okay, so you can't get healed till you're honest. David said in Psalm 51, that God is looking for honesty in the inward parts. Help us, Holy Spirit. I'm a revivalist, so I I actually preach repentance. What a concept. I'm I'm preaching repentance and favor in the same sermon. Hallelujah. Seems like polar opposites, but you're going to see they go together. David also said, I will praise the Lord while I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. In other words, it's an act of your will. Have you not, ever not felt like praising God? By the way, did the worship team do amazing this morning or what? I want to echo what pastor said. I think y'all did great. Did great. So it's an act of your will. If you've ever been a worship leader on a platform and had to look at you on a Sunday morning. Come on, preachers can amen on this too. And everybody's just kind of looking at you like, okay, bless me. Come on. Take me into the presence of God now. Look at Psalm 101. 
If you don't think these are vows, please look closely. I will sing of loving kindness and justice. To you, O Lord, I will sing praises. And sometimes it's an act of your will because you don't feel like glorifying God. How many of you know that praise changes things? That true worship shifts the atmosphere. Oh, but look at this. I will give heed to the blameless way. When will you come to me? I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. God, I'm going to walk in integrity when nobody's watching. When nobody else is in my house, I will walk in a blameless way before God. I'm going to serve God when nobody else is listening but God. I will. Look at this. I will set no worthless thing, verse 3, before my eyes. Oh, yeah. I hate the work of those who fall away. I will set, I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I, oh, my God. I, I, I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. Yeah, yeah, bust it, boom shakalaka. For those of you who need instruction, that was not a message in tongues. We don't need an interpreter. I will, I will set no worth. Man, that commercial. I, I, I will set no. The music starts to shift. You know the bedroom scene is coming. Nobody's in the room. I will set. I will. That's my vow. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. Not in yoga pants, not in spandex. You don't want none of this. Come on, y'all. I will. It's an act of my will. It takes an act of your will. We're talking about things that break our connection with God. We're talking about things that have kept us from having God's best. Why did they make such an extreme vow? They were separating themselves unto God because God was about to bless them in an amazing way. And it says now, a perverse heart, verse 4, shall depart from me. I will know no evil. So let me just recap here. I will give heed to the blameless way. I will sing praises. I, I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart when no one else is watching. I hate the work of those who fall away. I'm not going to set a worthless thing before my eyes. A perverse heart is going to depart from me. I will do no evil. These are vows before the living God. And God honors those vows because God knows that you love him. So about two and a half years ago, I, I lost my precious wife of 36 years. And uh, I want to be, I'm, I'm standing here to say this to you. We were married for 36 years. The last five years of her life were, were tormenting and were difficult. The last five years of her life and the last year, she was totally blind. Do you know that my wife never had to worry about trusting me? I stand before the living God and say this. You want to know why? I made a vow to my wife that I would love, honor, and cherish in sickness and in health and until death do us part. When she would kiss me by, uh, and in the last few, last few months, people had to come and sit with her. Sometimes she came with me. I brought her here to this church, Ricky, and y'all remember it, even when she was already losing her sight, and she sat on that front row. But the times when I would have to go and I'd have to leave her and someone would have to be a sitter for me while I was preaching and it was a difficult season, she would, she would always kiss me and she would say to me, Polly, and she called me Polly, none of you can do that. 
She was the only one that ever got to do that. She would say, Paulie, I trust you. She would say, I love you. And then she would always follow it up with, I trust you. Can I say to you, I never wanted to break that trust. There was a covenant between my wife and I that was lifelong until God took her up into heaven. Y'all still with me on this? How many of you are in covenant with Jesus Christ? We're the bride and he is the bridegroom. Amen, somebody. When we break our covenant promises, something happens. In the old English, they would say, I will or I shall. And one was first uh, person, one was second or third person. I will meant volition or intention by choice. I shall was just a little bit stronger. It implied necessity. In other words, uh, I'm obliged to. I have to do this. I must do this. I'm destined to do this. Uh, So I've got to ask you a couple of questions this morning. Are are y'all still focused in? You promise to take up your cross and follow after Jesus. Will you? Shall you? You promise to keep his commandments. Will you? Got a little quieter. You promised some of you to feed his lambs. Will you? Shall you? That implies sacrificial giving. That implies putting yourself out. You promised to be separated unto him, betrothed only to him. Will you? Shall you? Or are we slipping off and dallying with the world? Psalm 119, 106 says this, and then I'm moving on. I have sworn it, and I will confirm it, that I will keep your righteous ordinances. He said in 116, 14, I will pay my vows to the Lord. Oh, may it be in the presence of his people. Why am I saying all this? Uh, Throughout our culture, to say I will, or I shall, or I do, or I vow has stood for something. In the military service, how many people have served here in the military? Raise your hands. Keep them up. Thank you. You can put your hands down. Many of you promised to protect our nation against all invaders, foreign and domestic, and every threat. Amen, somebody? People who've served in law enforcement or served in the civic arena or they've served as firefighters, they make a vow to protect the citizens of their parish. Come on, somebody. And they're willing to lay their lives on the line so that you and I can be safe. Can I get a witness? We make a vow whenever we, we, we get married, uh, and you signed on the dotted line. And there was a witness that you were not going to break your covenant. I, I know everybody here, something I'm hitting you with, and there's a little bit of conviction hitting everybody here, and it's supposed to be that way, but I'm, uh, and I'm not going to let you off the hook for a few minutes, but we're about to find our way back to restoration. Are you hearing me? I said there's hope. Are you locked in with me on this message? I'm giving you a secret key from God. I said, I'm giving you a secret key from God to your joy being restored, to your healing coming, to open doors for ministry coming back to you, for your finances being restored, and for your family that's been devastated by the devil, for you to take back what the devil has stolen from you. I'm giving you a secret key from God that what has hindered a move of the Holy Spirit from happening in your life. And I'm seeing it connecting in people's faces right now. The devil does not want you to hear this. He wants you to tune this out. But I'm here to represent Abba, Father. How many of you bought a car, bought a house? Raise your hands. Bought a car, bought a house. Everybody else here came on the bus. (laughs) Live in apartments. 
possibly homeless. I don't know. We're afraid to raise our hands at this point, right? I know. Okay. Can I say to you that I have signed documents and I broke that promise? Can I say to you that I've made promises to God in a powerful church service and I did not keep that promise? I said, I will. I said, I shall. Whether it was in the heat of the moment, where it was an emotional thing, but I said I would and I didn't. And then the devil beat me over the head with it. And the accuser of the brethren, because that's his job, was up in my ear. You failed God. You said you were going to be there for those people. You failed those people. You failed your family in some measure. You said you were this and you weren't. And condemnation comes and shame comes. And our moral fabric and fiber is weakened. Now we can no longer speak authoritatively for God because the devil is reminding us how often we have failed God. But God himself is saying to you this morning, he wants to give you a redo. He wants to reconcile you today. Please don't leave this service without praying with me at the end of this service. God wants to restore you. And he wants to give you back your mojo. Some of you had juice with God at one time and you lost it. You lost it because you didn't have any faith because you knew you had failed. Maybe we've made rash or frivolous vows. We should never do that. Jephthah said, God, if you give me this battle, I'll give you the first thing. I'll sacrifice the first thing that walks through the door of my house. He shouldn't have said that. He thought it was going to be one of the lambs or goats that wandered in and out of Israeli houses back then. Said it was his precious daughter. He had to offer up his daughter as a sacrifice. Some people, some people make vows and they never even mean to keep them. Ananias and Sapphira promised money and they were lying straight up and the Holy Ghost led them out toes first. Dead as a hammer. But can I say to you, God doesn't want you to make frivolous vows, but he wants you to keep your promises. Can I give you two verses of scripture? Ecclesiastes 5, 4, when you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Keep all the promises you make to him. But Jesus said it best in Matthew 5, 33, don't make false vows, but fulfill your vows to the Lord. Okay, now I can bring this home. I'm going to explain to you why I have this gigantic bush on top of my head. So last year in August, we launched a new young adult network. It's called Warrior Path. It is a non-denominational, interracial uh, young adult movement. God's been blowing this up in me for years. I started doing stuff like this back in 2004. I founded something called Warrior School. We eventually called it a church because we didn't know what else to call it. But it was more than that. It was really a movement of the heart. As a matter of fact, I met... Your pastors are really connected with them soon after that. As a matter of fact, it wasn't long after that that uh, Chantel called me up and said, I need warriors here. I said, well, baby girl, just do what God's telling you to do. And she founded something called Barbarian Warrior School just down uh, south of here or south uh, east of here. And it was really, we were really learning, weren't we? We really didn't know what we were doing. Mo, we were just learning. 
We were just finding out that God wanted us to trigger something in a generation. See, I believe there's a generation of revivalists that God is raising up right now. Mighty warriors for the kingdom of God that are going to shake this planet and shake this earth for the Lord. And my generation has to understand how to empower them, anoint them, uh, even put them on the platform, and even trust the reins to them occasionally. I know it sounds like lunacy, but if we don't learn to do that, our churches will be closed soon with nobody. So I said yes to God, and I've said yes again recently, and already we've had four. It's not about conferences, by the way. It's a mentoring thing. I'm mentoring young adults in seven states right now. There are literally hundreds of them that I'm pouring into their lives, and they are youth pastors, they are worship leaders, they're associate pastors, and some are even young pastors. And I'm amazed, and I'm working myself out of a job fast as I can. It's getting where I'm not even on the platform now. I'm letting them run everything on the platforms I'm teaching them how to be event coordinators. I learned how, and I'm just backing off and letting them do it. And I'm behind the scenes like a proud Holy Spirit grandpa, just grinning and smiling and loving what God is doing as they're leading worship and they're speaking and they're praying for people. And I'm just there if the training wheels fall off. Hallelujah. So we launched it. We've already done four conferences in three states uh, with more lined up, but we launched it last August. So during the conference, God speaks to me and said, I want you to grow out your hair. And I was, what? He goes, I want you, he says, you're going to raise up a young Nazarite generation and I'm going to, you're going to have a Nazarite conference and I want you to grow your hair out as an outward sign of an inward work of the Holy Spirit. And I'm like, so how long are we going to do this? He says, as long as I tell you to. Okay. So here's the thing. My dad was a barber and a pastor. He did not like long hair. It was flat tops and crew cuts. And I mean, you know, and then later on in life, I got my hair got long in the seventies a little bit, you know, in Bible school when I was a little more rebellious and, uh, and it was the disco age and I was trying to look like Vinnie Barbarino. That shows how old I really am. I even had the white suit with the black shirt staying alive. So anyway, But disco, by the way, is dead. Thank you, Jesus. We are not resurrecting that. And so I had not had long hair for a really, really, really long time. It was just get in the shower uh, and just, you know, and then put get a little gel in your hand and go, boop, and you're done, right? Oh, my God. Ladies, can I say to you how much I admire you? My, My hair care products... Now, some, somewhere resemble the gross national debt, how much I spend on them. Are you okay? Okay, we can, we can stop a moment and have prayer. We're, we're okay. <laughs> I now understand. Blow drying your hair. What? This morning, there was like 35 minutes just dedicated to blow. And then you come into South Louisiana humidity and you step out and it just goes, wow. This side fights this side. I now understand what the words bad hair day mean. Seriously, I would, there are times you want to go out, but I'm really afraid that might happen because I have a lot of authority and I really don't want that to happen. A lot of people really totally miss that. So I said, yes, go to Numbers chapter 6. 
there's a method to the madness. Keep, just keep with me here. We're going to have prayer in just a moment. So I went back to reading something that I hadn't read in a long time. Please understand this symbolizes something. God is not telling you to stop eating raisins. Um, this symbolizes something. So in Numbers chapter 6, verse 1, and as you're turning there, the Nazarite vow was a vow that was made by men or women. It was not made by Israelites. Sometimes uh, some, it was made by Israelites, but not often by people who were in the Levitical priesthood already. These are people who came into the priesthood, just like those Rechabites, through their vow. How many of y'all know that you are the royal priesthood and the holy nation, every one of you? There were lifelong Nazarites. Most of the time, if they, if they made a Nazarite vow, they would grow their hair out for a season. The apostle Paul did. We have proof of that in chapter 18 of the book of Acts. And they would grow it for a season, then they would cut it and actually burn it as an offering unto the Lord. Now, Paul didn't even have a full head of hair. He was actually balding on top, but grew around the sides. He actually grew his hair out, cut it after a season, and then burned it. Hair represented the glory of God or your crown being offered up to God. Are y'all with me so far? So in Numbers chapter 6, verse 1, again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite to dedicate himself to the Lord, he shall abstain from wine, strong drink. He'll drink no vinegar, uh, whether made from wine or strong drink, neither shall he drink any grape juice or eat fresh or dried grapes. All the days of his separation, say separation. The word separate here is the Hebrew word pelah, to distinguish, set apart. The word Nazar, the root of the Nazarite, was to consecrate unto. It was an act of consecration. Look this way for just a second. Let me give you this. The old definition of consecration was dedicated to sacred purpose. We learned that in Bible school. We learned that coming up. The actual older definition was an association with the divine. In other words, an act that you perform that draws you closer to God. So let me say this to you before I finish reading this. Your vows cause you to rise to God. Let me say it again. The promises you make God cause you to rise to God. We ascend the hill of the Lord with clean hands and a pure heart. We come up out from where we are and we go up to where he is. By the promises we make him. So all the days of his separation, he'll not eat anything that is produced by grapevine, the seeds, even of the skin. All the days of the vow of separation, no razor shall pass over his head. He shall be holy until the days are fulfilled for which he separated himself to the Lord. He shall not let the locks of his hair grow long. All the days of his, he shall let the locks of his hair On his head, grow long. All the days of his separation, verse 6, to the Lord, he shall not go near to a dead person. He shall not make himself, this sounds so extreme, unclean for his father, his mother, his brother, his sister when they die because of his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he is holy unto the Lord. Okay, so I'm going to tell you a couple of things real quickly, and then we're going to be moving toward closing. Are y'all getting anything out of this so far? I told you we're doing this to take you someplace you need to be. You mean if Aunt Suki died, I can't go to the funeral? The reason they were doing that was it represented the corruption of death. They didn't want them touching any dead person because it represented corruption of death. Yeah, that seemed very extreme. It represented something to God. Remember when Jesus said, let the dead bury their dead? Jesus said a lot of stuff that people struggled with. I mean, stuff like, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Oh, Jesus, the things that you said. And he said, after that, many disciples turned and walked away from him. 
I'm considered a little bit extreme. Slightly. Hush. I'm trying to let these people know gently. Holy Ghost filled man of God, assembly of God preacher. Credentialed, my first credentialing in 1978. I've been with the movement for a long time. I love our doctrine. Don't always love our politics. I love our doctrine. But I'm a kingdom guy first and foremost. I belong to, get to daddy God. And I belong to his son Jesus. And whatever he says don't do, I don't do. What he says do, I do. I'm an obedient son. But I wasn't always. Jim Gall, the prophet, talks about the Nazarites. He said, let me help you understand what they represented in Israel. They would grow their hair out, and they were the warrior priests. And when it came time for battle, in the song of Deborah in, I think, Judges chapter 5, it says, and the leaders of Israel led. That root word for lead is the same root word in the Hebrew for let down the locks. So I went into the rabbinical studies and I studied in the Hebrew and I dug a little deeper. I had to find out what that was about. Can I tell you what they would do? The Nazarites who had made that vow would come down, men and women. Are you with me on this? And in the forefront of the battle, many of them with shofars or trumpets strapped onto them would pull off the and loose the locks of their hair. It literally meant to loose the locks. They would shake their hair down. Remember, they didn't have walkie-talkies. They did not have headsets. They did not have cell phones. And so they're all in a big line. The enemy's down there, and they're fixed to charge down the hill. And the Hebrews would shout this battle cry that they actually still, the Israeli army still knows, Rach Kazakh. They would shake down their hair, blow that shofar, and shout, to Jehovah and run down the hill into battle and the people would see these warrior priests who were so sold out and so dedicated to God doing this and they would look around and go ah, and run down the hill after him and the power of God would go before him and the enemy would be like and run because they knew the power of that vow and they knew the relationship that they had with God that they were just and righteous and the favor of God was with them. Romans chapter 12. And I'm seriously closing. While you're turning there, everybody here knows the scripture. Matter of fact, I don't even have to turn to it. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, I learned it, King James, because, you know. But if you want to read it in the Message Bible, I'm cool with it. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service of worship, which is your sacrificial mode of worship. And don't be conformed to this world, right? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So here I am a living sacrifice. I will. I shall. God wants you to know that your vow is not outdated. God wants you to know that he still keeps his promises. Holy and acceptable unto God, which is my reasonable service of worship. I'm not going to be conformed to this world. I'm going to be transformed by the renewing of my mind. I'm going to be a man set apart. 
Why is this important? I was in a church in Baton Rouge last August, right after we finished the first uprising conference. It was a multi-church event on a Sunday night. We had done the first uprising on a Saturday. I'm in my dear friend's church, and God has give, gives me a word for Denham Springs and Baton Rouge. Right at the very end of it, God said that judgment was coming. The people better pray and repent, and God gave me detailed things about what were about to happen. It was recorded. And people, you know how people do their phones and, and people are doing that? Everything's on Facebook now. I said what God told me to say. It was not about judgment coming on that church. That church was a wonderful church. That pastor is a wonderful pastor. But four days later, I'm getting phone calls until the cell towers went out. I'm getting messages. Oh, my God. What you prophesied in detail is hitting Baton Rouge right now. It's not a 100-year flood. It's a 500-year flood. The water's rising so fast. Please understand, 90% of some churches, some churches lost 90% of their members lost their homes. Some churches, 90% of the members lost their jobs. The churches, including that one, were flooded, lost all of their beautiful seats, beautiful sound system, lost everything. It happened so fast. Nobody was expecting it. Floodwaters were also in that same time hitting North Louisiana and hitting other parts of our state. How many of y'all remember that? We had, look, when people from Mississippi are having to help us out, you know it's been bad. Oh, come on, smile with me. I can say that. I preach a lot in Mississippi. Mississippi was bailing us out, y'all. Many churches never recovered. I get invited. The first place for me to preach this message that I'm preaching to you right now. Now this church is meeting in a house, but the house was packed out because the church was thriving. Did I tell you God would take care of you? Even in the difficult season, God will take care of those that are faithful to him. This church lost everything they had, did not have flood insurance. And God provided for them miraculously. Can, <laughs> oh, wait, you hear the rest of this. I'm walking in this church. I haven't seen them since I prophesied that. I, God, I don't know if they're going to like me or not. Oh, my God. Last time I was here and then people been contacting me all year, I walk in. The place was packed out. There was people in the dining room. The living room was filled up. They were singing off the wall. People were down the hallway and people were still coming in. I got there kind of late. An older gentleman come walking in with one of the board members helping him along. And he had his arm in a sling. And I said, Pop, what, what happened to you? He says, son, he goes, uh, well, listen, uh, and I, I see the pastor over in the living room, and I'm in the kitchen trying to get in. He said, uh, I had a tumor the size of a duck egg cut out. It was right by my heart, but it was so big and grown up into my shoulder, into my nerves. And he said, here, unbuttons his shirt and pulls back the gauze. I said, when was that? He goes, earlier this week, and he opens up his big gaping hole, and I went, that's okay. You can cover it up. Some people, you just don't ask them what they've been going through physically, right? I got a rash right here. No, we're good. I believe you. It's really oozing, and then I got a place right here. Let me shit. No. We're, we're good. God, God bless you. Go. Sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't hope I didn't offend anybody with that. Uh, smile. I'm fixing to let you go, sort of, but God might not. 
He said the problem is that it was up in the nerves of my arm and shoulder. They got, they got all the cancer. They saved my heart. But I may not ever have the use of my hand and my arm again. It's totally numb. There's no feeling. I can't move my fingers. I said, why are you here? He goes, after that last sermon you preached here, I wouldn't miss it for the world. Okay. They take him in the back, put him in a corner, and they like put a cordon of men around so nobody would bump into him because he was an honored, you know, elder in the church. I preached this message, still raw, still hadn't worked out the, you know, preached it, and God said, now, two-part altar call. Tell the people that the curse that the accuser has put on them because they broke their vow, I'm going to break off of them. And I'm going to restore them today if they'll apologize to me for breaking their promise. That's all they have to do. Ask me to forgive them for breaking their promise and make a new promise and a new vow to me to serve me with all their heart. People begin to weep. There was a two-part altar call because the second part was all blessing, but we had to start out with repentance. Y'all still with me? And so we prayed that prayer. Everybody's weeping. Suddenly, I hear a shout, and I see that board member doing like this. That old gentleman was moving that arm. I asked him after church, what happened? He said, well, when I repented, healing virtue started flowing through my arm, and the the movement came back, and and the numbness started going, and I knew it was going to be all right. I said, the healing came when the curse was broken, when the shame was lifted, when the stain was washed. Healing came. And then we prayed, and we renewed our covenant vows to God. And I'm going to take you there right now. So I ask you, do you know who today's Nazarites are? They're the ones who are voluntarily consecrated to God, who are greatly trusted by God with his best. Many of you have heard of D.L. Moody, a great old preacher. He was actually a Baptist preacher. But D.L. Moody was a man, things that he said went around the world. He was actually a very quiet little man, a shoe salesman. He, would, he was half blind. He would read his sermons like this in a whisper, and the Spirit of God would be so on it that people would run down the front and get saved. But he went to Ireland to hear another guy who used to be a butcher because this butcher had made a comment, and that comment had gone around the world, and D.L. Moody, had, had uh, he would have retweeted it today. But instead, he commented on it, and it went around the world because people hadn't heard of a British guy named Henry Varley, the butcher, who said these words that you've heard, maybe knew who they were attributed to, you didn't know. He said, the world has yet to see what God will do with a man who's fully consecrated to him. Can I say that that's not just gender-based, that's who will be consecrated completely to God. And D.L. Moody immediately said, I aim to be that man. So he went to Ireland to meet Henry Varley. And after that meeting, this is what D.L. Moody said. Lord, make us those who meet your need today. 